0: So the book of Romans, chapter 8, again, we'll pick it up at verse 18, as we continue our journey through the book of Romans, through this wonderful, very powerful chapter that is before us, and we have read that Paul the Apostle, in chapter 8 of Romans, has declared to us that we are saved by the work of the Spirit in our lives. And if you were with us in our study last week, in verse 9, that we read that, um, if, but you are not in the flesh, you and I who are in Christ Jesus, um, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And of course, the chapter started out with this wonderful truth that there is now therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know that as we're born again by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God dwells in our hearts that there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ. As believers, we have the spirit of God that dwells in us and we have the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, verse 15. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed the the children of God. Just this wonderful assurance and peace that we have in our hearts uh, that we belong to him that we have relationship with him. And that's what's so wonderful about being a Christian is it's not about religion. It's about relationship with the true and the living God. And he dwells in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And we have that testimony that I belong to him. I have that assurance. And I can call out, Abba, Father, only Those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ can say that, can call really God our Father. And so wonderful truths as we are learning about what it means to be born again by the Spirit of God, to be walking in the Spirit, uh, life in the Spirit, um, that we have enabling us to live a life for Him. But also as we continue in chapter 8, we're going to see and learn wonderful truths about walking in the Spirit, life in the Spirit during times of difficulties and suffering. You see, these verses that we're going to cover, starting in verse 18, we'll go through verse 27, we're going to read that there's a whole lot of groaning that is going on. There is the groaning of the believer. There is the groaning of creation. There is the groaning of the Holy Spirit. It is not whining. It is not complaining. It's not murmuring. It's not griping. It is groaning, which is something that is different. And as we read about this groaning that you and I can have, what creation have, our body has, that is going to be contrasted with glory. Now we finished last time at verse 17, that if or that is since indeed we suffer with him, and we do. If you and I to this morning are born again, we're Christians, we have the spirit of God that dwells in us, we are no longer at home in this world. You and I are no longer to have a love for the world. What I mean by that is the worldly pleasures, the the worldly things. We're no longer uh, desiring to go out and sin and live according to the world. You cannot go out as a Christian and pursue sin, live in sin, and be happy. And as we have seen that living in Christ, living in this grace that has been bestowed upon us that it doesn't mean that we live in sin. That's chapter 6. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. We identify with Christ now. We walk in this newness of life. And then as we moved into chapter 7, not only are we dead to sin, we're no longer, you know, having sin in the world be our master, but Jesus is our master. But second of all, we're also dead to the law. And the reason that we're dead to the law, the law is God's standard, but the law has a weakness in that it cannot enable you and I to live Christ-like, to give us the power to live for him. You see, we can't do that in the flesh. The, the law can't do that. It has to be the Spirit of God working in our lives. And that's what chapter 8 is all about. And you and I, as we identify with Christ, as we're living for Christ, as we are walking in the Spirit, we are spiritually minded, not carnally minded, you and I, that we are ruined for this world. And for that I am glad. And as we are not to have a love for the world, we are in the world, though. And what that means, that on this side of eternity, that we will have difficulties, and we will have trials, and we will have suffering. We don't fit in here in this world. We don't fit into the old hangouts and the worldly pleasures and worldly things. We can't be comfortable with this world. We see the deception and the evil and the confusion and the darkness with the world, and it grieves us, doesn't it? We know that we will go through those times because Jesus himself said that you will have tribulation, not that you might have tribulation. You will have tribulation, but be a good cheer for I've overcome the world. And we know that even with our own struggles that we talked about in chapter seven, when we're aware of them and the shortcomings and the failures, that that grieves our hearts as well. We get frustrated and and we can say yuck in our hearts. Because we look forward to a kingdom that is ours when all of this struggle will be over with. We look forward to a kingdom that will be eternal. No more sin, no more death, no more darkness, no more sickness, no more tears or sufferings. But on this side of eternity, we do suffer. And we are afflicted to some degree. And Paul begins to talk about that beginning here in verse 18. So as we are looking at this, chapter 8, not only walking in the Spirit that enables us to live a life for the Lord, but a life in the Spirit that enables us to give us some understandings in our times of suffering. Let's begin to look at that in Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18 this morning. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So that word consider, we've seen that word before in chapter 6. You recall that as we identify with Christ, that we walk in this newness of life, we are to consider. Or if you have a King James, it's the word reckon. We're to reckon it to be so that we're to yield our bodies over as an instrument of righteousness. So Paul, once again, uses that same word. If you have a King James, it's reckon, reckon for I consider, I reckon. Uh, what it means, it's, it's actually a, a math term. It's a, a word that means that I've added it up. I've summed it up. I've come to the conclusion. So that's what Paul once again is saying. For I consider, I've added it up. I've come to the conclusion that our sufferings and our future glory, they cannot be compared to each other. And Paul would write something similar as he was writing his second letter to the Corinthian believers, as he would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceedingly and eternal weight of glory. And it interests me that as Paul, as he's writing that letter to the Christians in Corinth, that he says our light affliction, our light affliction, this is coming from a man that went through stonings, and he went through beatings, and he was hungry, and he was thrown in prisons, and riots broke out around his ministry. It seemed like wherever he went, that either a revival or a riot would break out, sometimes both. That's what happened in Ephesus, and that's what we talked about on Wednesday night in a letter to, to uh, the church at Ephesus, the history that Paul established that church on his third missionary journey, and you read Acts chapter 19, how all of Asia was changed by the gospel, the city of Ephesus, revival broke out, the school of Tyrannus, where disciples were taught by Paul the apostle, and they went out and established those churches that we read about there in Revelations chapters 2 and 3. It was a marvelous move of God, but then at the end of three years, a riot broke out, and he was driven out of the city, And Paul was one that went through tremendous difficulties. And he says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, cannot be compared to the glory that awaits us. And Paul here says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, that, that I consider this. That the sufferings of the present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. And that is why it's so important, Christian, that we keep our hearts and our minds. The priority should be eternity. To be spiritually minded. Which causes us to keep a focus on heaven and a focus on the Lord. But so much of Christianity today can be to get us focused on the temporal. The here and the now. We live in this world. We have cares of life. There are things that happen all around us that weigh heavy on our hearts. But the scripture is telling us that there is an eternal perspective that you and I are to have. And to keep our eyes and our minds on the eternal, on heaven, not on the things that are temporal. That's not the priority. That's not the priority of our lives. The things of this world. I'm not saying they're not important. But priority is heaven. And as we go through affliction or suffering at the present time, we can remember in those times that we are adopted children of God and that we are heirs of God, joint heirs of Christ. And this life will pass away quickly. And the glory which awaits is so wonderful and glorious that we can't possibly imagine it all. And you know that when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, at the end of the letter after he writes about all the difficulties that he went through and lists them, that he says that I know a man, there in chapter 12, that was caught up into third heaven and, and saw and heard things that were unlawful to utter. And then he gets personal after that, not that I should boast. So the conclusion in that is that Paul's talking about himself. And he's probably talking about a time, as he said, years ago, I know a man that was caught up in the third heaven. He, he, he saw things that were unlawful. He couldn't uttered. Uh, And it's probably speaking of on Paul's first missionary journey, but that Paul was in Lystra, Acts chapter 14. And you remember that Paul, as he's preaching there, that all of a sudden that this mob came and took him and stoned him and left him for dead. It is at that time that he probably went up and saw things in heaven that he says unlawful for me to utter. He would come back, he rose up, resurrected up, and he went his way, and he continued to minister. And I consider that and I think, I think I would have retired at that time. But Paul, he he would be one that he saw heaven, and he saw things that it was unlawful, he writes, for me to speak, to utter. He knew that heaven was real. And it caused him to be spiritually and heavenly minded. And he would be dedicated to giving this message of the gospel, even if it meant suffering, because he knew of the glory of heaven, that heaven is real, and that's where we're going to go after this side of eternity, after we end up dying. And he wanted people to know that it's real, that Christ provided for them to be able to go. And so we as Christians, we have the same message to give. And may we always have an eternal heavenly perspective, being heavily minded, keeping our focus on the things above, not on the things of this world, as Paul would write to the Church of Colossae, and realize that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And Paul, listen, in this, he is not saying that the present sufferings or loss or difficulties or trials that we go through on this side of eternity, he is not saying that it does not hurt, because it does. Or it does not bring pain. Of course it does. But he is saying that there is a glory that is going to be revealed to us, and it will be eternal. When Paul was writing that letter of 2 Corinthians, he begins by saying to them, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strain, so that we were despaired even of life. And he talks about the consolation of Christ given to us to console us, to comfort us in all our tribulations. And he says, our hope for you is that you be steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering because of Christ, so you will also partake in the consolation, the comfort of Christ. And he writes that we are being renewed day by day, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. So here in Romans, Paul says, I consider this. I've come to the conclusion. I've added it up. And that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We continue in verse 19. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So Paul is going to be explaining to us that all creation is awaiting and anticipating this coming glory. Now, as believers, our bodies, we do know uh, that one day our bodies will be redeemed. Our our bodies uh, will be resurrected. We'll get new heavenly bodies. And here we're learning that creation will one day be redeemed. We live in a fallen world. When God created this world, he looked at it and he said, it is good but then man sin and sin and death came into the world and now we live in a fallen world as you know and as beautiful as our state is one hour away is one of the most beautiful places in all of the world. I think that Colorado and, and, you know, the western United States, Wyoming, Montana, uh, those of you who like to get out, Utah are some of the most beautiful places in all of the world. And you probably have been to a lot of these places that are around Colorado and in our state, but we're looking at a fallen world. There are dead trees. There are bears and mountain lions that we have to take our bear spray. You know, there is is. When you go fishing, mosquitoes that can be so bad that they'll eat you alive. But we live in a time where we see a fallen creation, but Jesus is going to come back and establish the kingdom of God. And he will rule and reign, and we're going to rule and reign with him. And as Isaiah speaks about that time, if you are with us, we just finished Isaiah at the end of the year, going through all 66 chapters. And Isaiah talked a lot about the coming of the Lord, the coming kingdom. And the lamb will lie down with the wolf, chapter 11. The leopard with the young goat, the cow and the bear shall graze together. And Isaiah, Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophets, talk about how the land is going to be restored, that the desert is going to bloom once again again that even the dead sea that we know of today it's the lowest point on the face of the earth you go there it's dead there's nothing living in the dead sea but the dead sea during the millennium reign is going to have fish they're going to be fishing out of the dead sea i wonder how good the fishing is going to be i imagine it's going to be pretty good but then of course that after the millennium reign as peter writes that this world the heavens and earth as we know it's going to go up in a fervent heat it's going to melt away Revelation chapter 20 speaks of that. And and God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, never to be tainted by sin. So Paul is telling us that creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. When God will establish his kingdom and then in, in verses 20 through 22 explains this further. But what I want to do is I just want to take a minute and tell you what verse 19 does not mean. Because there have been those who are coming around, and they use verse 19 here, Romans chapter 8, to support a doctrine that's been floating around the church, especially the last 40 or 50 years. It has popularity within certain circles. Back in the 80s and the 90s, it was called the manifested sons of God. Uh, it was called the Super Apostles and Prophets movement. That was very big. It was coming out of Kansas City, and now it's it's coming back again in the New Apostolic Reformation. There's nothing new about that doctrine, and essentially what it is saying is that the church is going to once again it's going to be what is going to be raised up as these apostles and and prophets that are going to have great authority and and they have greater authority over the evangelists and pastors and teachers and they are going to be working miracles and giving you know prophetic utterances And they are, you know, going to have such an effect on the world that God's going to be pouring out a spirit through them and through the church, that the church is going to grow and grow and grow. And there's going to be mass healings and pretty much take over the world. And then we're going to usher in the second kingdom, the the, the kingdom of God, the second coming. The problem is, as good as that sounds, that's not what the Bible says is going to happen. And that's not what this scripture is telling us here in verse 19 is going to happen. Matter of fact, as we're going to go through the book of Revelation, we're going to see that there's going to be tribulation and great tribulation right before the second coming of Jesus Christ and he establishes his kingdom Jesus said it's gonna be great tribulations such as the world has never seen nor ever will see again. Oh, there's gonna be people coming to Christ during the tribulation period. We know that from the ministry, the hundred and forty four thousand and the two witnesses. We'll cover all that, come out and get a good understanding of what is being told to us in the scriptures. But it isn't that we're gonna take over the world and then we're gonna usher in the second coming. So I don't know why people would even give the time of day to that doctrine, but they do, and it's growing. It's growing in the church today. So Paul is telling us what the manifested sons of God is. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption and to the glorious liberty of the children of God. In verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. So again, after the fall of Adam, the result was the fallen creation, right? We got weeds we have to pull in the summertime. We got mosquitoes that bite us, you know. We we see things die. Uh, creation is groaning under the curse of sin. And in the last few years, we've seen devastating hurricanes and tsunamis and floods and earthquakes. And in nature, this fallen world groans and waits for the day. That Jesus Christ comes back, and then as Isaiah chapter fifty five declares to us, then the trees in the field will clap their hands. Now as we read these verses here, that creation, we read, is subject to futility or vanity. We don't see its full potential. Creation is in bondage where it can't free itself, verse twenty one. And interesting that creation is in this state of labor. Verse 22, birth pangs. It's an interesting picture, isn't it? The whole creation groans in this labor. It's like it's waiting for something to be born. And I believe that it is talking about the millennium when Jesus establishes his kingdom and things are restored and the destiny, if you would, of the creation, listen, is linked to the believer, not to the unbeliever. We hear so much about saving the planet today, don't we? I'm not saying those discussions aren't important, you know, climate change and all of this, but we hear terms Mother Earth and Earth First and Greenpeace and all of this, and we have to save the planet. And please do not misunderstand me. I think that we need to be good stewards of the land of the environment, I really do, the natural resources that we have. I have no problem with that at all. I enjoy our wonderful state. I love going to, to, driving up to different areas, you know, into Utah and Montana and Idaho. I love the Western states. I have a degree in natural resource management. I think that conservation practices are very, very important. Clean air, clean water, of course. I don't think that any of us would argue with that. I know the name of trees. I know their scientific names. I like trees. But I'm not a tree hugger. And you see, there's there's conservation practices that include cutting down a tree. I remember when we were at CSU that one of the ways they weeded out students that wanted to go into forestry is they took a basic forestry class, and then as they showed slides of, of civil cultural practices of harvesting trees and cutting down trees, those who were horrified by it would get out of forestry. So there's conservation practices when it comes to the ecosystems that includes cutting down a tree, you know, that, that is to be done. And uh, in a way that produces healthy forests, we had a saying, you know, cut them flat, burn them black, and grow them back. That was kind of the saying that we had in the department. Uh, I, I know, and I read about fishery biologies in the restoring of habitat. I love to read about that. I know the projects that are going on. I support those. I love to watch wildlife. I love the, you know, the Yellowstone ecosystem. It's one of my favorite places in the world, and my greatest Memories that I have with my children, one of the greatest memories is being there in the Lamar Valley with the scopes at the break of dawn, watching the grizzly bears and the wolves. But I also know that good conservation practices of wildlife is hunting. You see, the reason I'm saying this is there can be so much talk and so much debate, and there can be those who can... That gets so into earth first and Greenpeace and and so involved and we gotta save a tadpole in a water system, but not concerned about the millions of abortions that have taken place in our nation? And the taking of unborn children? There's something wrong, a wrong perspective where you can get in big trouble, get fined or thrown in prison for destroying an eagle's egg. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be some kind of punishment, but not be concerned about human life and the taking of an unborn child in a mother's womb. Not concerned about that and trying to push across. They even do it up to the time of birth. And we are living in the world that is more anti-God and anti-family and pro-abortion and pro-immorality, all to say this, that creation is not going to be happy until Jesus Christ comes back and the earth is restored and creation will realize its potential. You know, they have found fossils of asparagus ferns that were 50 feet high. They found fossils of, of fruit trees that they believe that probably were 90 feet tall. Can you imagine the fruit on those trees? What it will be like? What is it going to be like when the Lord comes back? And the trees in the field clap their hands, and and the desert blooms, and it's going to be incredible. He's the ultimate environmentalist, Jesus is. And in verse 23, we continue, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen as not hope. For why does it one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Not only does creation Grown, but our body's grown, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And the older that we get, the more our body's grown, right? And we are desiring, I know that I am, and I know many of you are too, of that time when we will get our new heavenly body that God has promised us. No more sickness, no more painful knees, painful backs. You know, can't see very well. We don't see this new body that we're going to get in the future when we are resurrected, but we eagerly wait for it. We do it with perseverance. So as long as the Lord has us here, we're going to keep groaning with the bad knees and the bad backs and the sickness as we get older and all of that. So creation groans, you know, our bodies groan, But then the Spirit groans, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, or groanings inexpressible, literally is what it means. Now, he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. When we've been adopted into heaven Heaven's going to be our home. We're pilgrims and strangers here. There's going to be sufferings for us here as we kind of put it all together. And as we come to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is going to be there in our lives, dwelling in our hearts, helping us to live a life for him. But also the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts and he is faithful to help us live that life for Jesus and He helps us in our weaknesses in prayer and makes intercession for us. In those times in our hearts where we're going through sufferings and difficulties that we don't know what to pray. That the good news is the Holy Spirit is there. When we have groanings inexpressible, we don't know what to say in our hearts. You see, sometimes we think even when we're going through difficulties and loss and grief and hurt, that we think that, you know, I've got to come up with this, this intelligent prayer. But we're so overwhelmed, we don't know what to pray. We don't know what to pray. And the word help here has the idea of helping another to carry a heavy load. It is used one other time in the New Testament. And it's interesting. It's used in Luke chapter 10. That story when Jesus went to the house of Mary and Martha. And you recall that Martha's in the kitchen and she's overwhelmed. She's making this dinner and, and she's overwhelmed so much. She comes in and she says to, to Jesus, tell my sister Mary to get in here and help me. She was overwhelmed at that time. It was too much for her. She was just, it was, you know, she was about ready to to just, um, you know, so overwhelmed that she didn't know what to do. Help me. I need help. And there are times in our lives we feel that way, especially when we're going through difficulties ourselves and we don't know what to pray, we don't know what the will of God is and we need the Holy Spirit that he takes the groanings that are in our heart, inexpressible, we don't know what to pray and he takes those prayers and he presents them before the throne of God and he helps us. He helps us. I'm sure Pastor Jim... Had that groaning that was going on in his heart when he sat next to Chris's bed on Wednesday night. Praying, not know exactly what to pray. What is your will, Lord? You've had those same moments, perhaps, when you've been with somebody that you care and love for, that was very sick. Or mom and dad for that child that's a prodigal, that son or that daughter, and you don't know how to pray. Or maybe that circumstance that is so overwhelming, the hurt, you've been betrayed, and you don't know what to pray. Or the circumstance that just seems like there's no solution to this. I don't have the strength for this. I need help. The Holy Spirit is there to help you with groaning's inexpressible as he searches the depths of our hearts and then presents it before the Lord as he intercedes for us. When you are praying for somebody and we are with people in our lives that we don't know how to pray for them, how do we pray for them that's going through difficulties and sufferings? We don't know what to say. We don't know how to pray at times. How do I pray with somebody when I'm standing with the Father there at the bank's, of the Platte River as they recover his son's body. How do I pray when I'm with the parents of a teenage girl that was just in a car wreck and they said, you need to go in. We're prepping her for surgery, but you need to go in and say goodbye to her because she's probably not going to make it through surgery. How do you pray and what do you say when you're with somebody that's lost their baby her loved one who has gone through such deep hurt? We don't know what to say at times. And the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us of those groanings inexpressible. And he searches the depth of our heart When we need help, Lord, help me. Lord, you take what is in my heart, the groaning's there. And he makes intercession for you and for me. And that brings me great comfort. That brings me great comfort. And as we end here this morning, we're reading what we don't know, then next week we're going to pick it up in verse 28 that we do know that God is working together for good. And we are going to keep it all in context because when we go through sufferings and stuff or somebody goes through suffering, you go through loss, somebody takes that well-known verse, well-meaning, they say, well, God's working for good. And you're kind of going, oh, man. God is working all things together for good. We're going to look at that next time. But when we don't know the Holy Spirit is there to help or to strengthen us, that we can fall back on the things that we do know. And we'll pick that up next week. Very important for us. And I think it's going to be very comforting for us as we consider it. Listen, you overwhelmed in your heart? You You overwhelmed? The Holy Spirit that dwells in your heart takes what is there and he presents it before the throne of God, those groanings inexpressible, to make intercession for you and for me. Be comforted by that. Be comforted by that. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for your word given to us. The comfort that we can receive and we know that on this side of eternity that we go through sufferings and difficulties and hardships and loss and, and Lord, I pray that we would know that you're with us during this time and the Holy Spirit in our hearts takes those groanings inexpressible and presents them to you, Father. Father. When we can't muster up the words, we don't know what the will of God is, we don't know what to say, but you take those groanings in the deepest depth and resources of our hearts and present them and intercedes. And I thank you for that, searching our hearts. When we don't know how to pray for somebody, Lord, that we can just go to you and allow you to minister to us in the Holy Spirit that begins to intercede, begins to bring the consolation. And in those times where we don't understand, we can have some understanding that you're there with us, working on our behalf. Father, I want to pray for anyone who may be here that as we get ready to come to the communion table here in just a minute, the communion table is remembering what Jesus did for us. It is for the believer. And if you're here, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. We want to give you that opportunity that he is your hope. He's your salvation. It's not this world. It's not yourself. In our flesh, we've read, nothing good dwells. You can't save yourself. It is coming and recognizing your need to be forgiven. That Jesus Christ came and died for your sins, and He rose again, and He is alive, and that He is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through Him. That only those who come to faith in Jesus Christ have that spirit of adoption, crying out, Abba, Father. He loves you, He's made provision, He's calling you to salvation. He's given the invitation. Will you come? It is faith in Jesus Christ. He did the work by dying for your sins and he rose again. And he comes. He says, come to me and believe. Call out on the name of Jesus. You can do that right where you are, right where you're at, at this time. Today is the day of salvation. You can pray, Jesus, I come right now and I present my heart to you. I turn to you and ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe you died for my sins. Forgive me. And that you're alive. And I thank you for saving me. And I thank you for your love for me. That I can become now part of the family of God. This eternal kingdom. Have forgiveness. And have peace with God. Through you, Jesus. Thank you. And I do want to know you and walk with you. Fill me with your spirit that I may live a life for you now in Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer, when we conclude communion here, first of all, you're welcome to communion if you sincerely prayed that. And then come and tell the people in the prayer team the decision that you made. But for all of us, that as the communion elements are handed out, that you would hang on to them. And that you would just reflect on this new covenant that we belong to. Jesus' body being broken, his blood shed for forgiveness of sin.